You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Our scripture is in Galatians chapter 2, and uh, reading from, I think we'll read verse 19 through verse 21, and if you're using the church Bible, it's on page 1169, 1169. I was brought up in a home where uh, there were very few books, a post-war baby, a very modest home, and uh, I think from I think my mother taught me to read long before I went to school, which is probably a no-no these days. Um, but it improved my reading, and so I would read everything that came into the house. And there was a magazine that came into the house. I think it may actually have been sourced in Dundee, entitled "The People's Friend." It's a magazine for ladies. It had all these stories of the old days in the National Church of new young ministers arriving in churches who were unmarried, and suddenly the choir would fill up at the encouragement of the mothers of the, the ladies of uncertain years in the congregation who were not yet married. And uh, so there were serial stories. They were never about serial killers. They were always, they were kind of romantic, really. But, you know, I was an avid reader, and I would, I would read anything. Um, didn't exactly turn me into the great romantic, but that's, <laughs> that's another story. Um, and there was always this little piece at the beginning, in italics. You read The People's Friend, Hugh, did you? They, and, and the little bit in italics always said, the story thus far. You know, and it would, it would, if you were a new reader, it would catch you up. Now, the story thus far in Galatians is that Paul has been preaching the gospel. He was a member of the church in Antioch, you remember, uh, early on, and Peter was uh, visiting the church in Antioch. He describes this incident in in chapter 2, and there took place one of the most electric moments in the whole of the young church's history. some of the, the right-wingers came down from Jerusalem to this tremendous church at Antioch, huge missionary concern. And uh, when they came down, because they were the kinds of Christians who had been brought up in Judaism, and that was the Old Testament teaching, they felt very strongly that these, these Gentile Christians, in addition to trusting Christ as their Savior, should keep the Old Testament food laws. Uh, there were other things, but, but that was one of the things. And um, there was Simon Peter, and uh, you know, for a couple of weeks on his visit, he'd, he'd, he'd been having a bacon sandwich with the Gentile believers. And uh, these Christians appear from Jerusalem, very hard line, insisting on observing the Old Testament dietary laws as well as probably the days of the Old Testament calendar. And um, immediately, apparently, Peter moved over to the salad bar. Um, and chapter 2 in Galatians describes this I think it must just have been one of the most amazing moments when you think there were people there who must have known this is the man to whom Jesus said, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. This was the man who had opened the door of the gospel on the day of Pentecost. This was actually the man who had opened the door of the gospel to the Gentiles in the household of Cornelius in, uh, in Acts chapter 10. And there he is, uh, you know, he's moved over to the salad bar, and uh, the Apostle Paul eyeballed him and told him he was denying the gospel. Uh, Whether it was a bacon sandwich or or whether it was a tomato sandwich uh, seemed a very incidental thing. But he was actually denying the gospel. 
And uh, it's in this context that Paul says something. This is, I think, almost certainly his earliest extant letter. He says something that actually takes him chapters in other letters to expound. And so these words are really just an introduction to something hugely central in Paul's thinking about what it means to be a Christian. So he says, through the law, through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification were through the law, if by observing the days and the diets and circumcision, if justification were through the law, then Christ died to no purpose. Now, last time, last Lord's Day evening, when we were looking at this great verse, Galatians 2, verse 20, which Annabelle, you'll remember, quoted in her prayer this evening, I was underscoring that the, the amazing thing about this verse is that perhaps more than any other verse in the whole of the New Testament, it gives us the gospel of Jesus Christ in a nutshell. It gives us a description of what it means to be a Christian in a nutshell, much more so than John 3.16, which is in many ways a more famous verse. And it does so in this intriguing way we noticed last time by the use of four prepositional statements. And I was trying to say last time, these prepositions, and prepositions are always small words, and we tend not to think they're very significant. These prepositions are hugely important and a wonderful help to understanding what it means to be a Christian believer. I, says Paul, have been crucified with Christ, yet not I live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And I was suggesting that we can, we can rearrange these words like uh, perhaps the, the departures board in a major airport rearranging itself. And we understand the logic of Paul's teaching. First of all, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. Second, because he has given himself for me, by the Holy Spirit I have come to trust, come to believe in the Lord Jesus as my Savior. Since that is true, I have been crucified with Christ. And the life I now live, I live no longer out of my own resources, but by faith in the Son of God who dwells, lives in me. My guess, you can tell me if I'm wrong, my guess is that the first two prepositional statements are very familiar to all of us who are Christians. They are the heart of the gospel. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me on the cross. In response to that, I have come to trust in, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the absolute foundation of the Christian gospel. But Paul immediately wants us to understand that that foundation carries with it gospel implications. Implications that are actually built into the very logic of the gospel itself. If these things are true, then there are two other things that are true. I have been crucified with Christ. 
and the life that I now live, I live, yet not I, but Christ dwells in me, and I live in the context of his resources. So, notice that uh, that the Apostle Paul is drawing us in to understand the dimensions of the gospel, the dimensions of what happens to us when we become Christians. We see he has died for us and we trust in him. But because we trust into union with him, elsewhere Paul uses a a preposition that has a very distinctive flavor. He says we actually believe into Jesus Christ. We believe into union and communion with Jesus Christ. There are two other things that by definition are true of the Christian. The Christian is somebody who therefore has been crucified with Christ, and the Christian is also someone in whom Christ dwells by the Holy Spirit. Let me try and and tease this out. Because we tend to be a people who live the Christian life on the basis of what we experience. And you may not feel as a Christian very crucified with Christ you may not feel as a Christian that Christ dwells in you. And you may therefore draw the conclusion this is, this is not really very significant. And one of the things Paul is teaching us here is that we learn to live the Christian life not in terms of the way we think about it because of our experience, but in terms of the truth of the gospel and the way it shapes our experience, and transforms that experience. So, let me me try it again. Perhaps I'm preaching to the choir. If you are a Christian, you have been crucified with Jesus Christ. No matter how, how you feel about that, you cannot be a Christian without that being true. If you are a Christian, you have been crucified with Christ. And if you are a Christian, doesn't matter how you feel, Christ comes to dwell in you in the power of the Holy Spirit. And of course, the point is, if those things are true, then being a Christian is a much bigger thing than most of us normally understand. We think about Christ dying for us and us trusting in him. But Paul is saying that is Those are only two of the dimensions of the gospel. And uh, for a few minutes at least, I want to try and introduce these two other dimensions. Let, Let me try it this way. If I were to ask you tonight, what is your relationship to Jesus Christ? My guess is most evangelical Christians might think for a minute and say, well, that's actually, it's not bad. The relationship is going well. Or you might say, well, actually, I think I'm backsliding. To which I want to say, that isn't the question I'm asking. You're answering the question, what is your communion with Christ like? I am asking the question, what is your relationship with Christ? Put it this way. You say to me, how is your relationship to Dorothy? Those of you who don't know her, Dorothy is my wife. My answer might be, we're getting on all right. We've been married 40-odd years, and it seems to be lasting. You would be entitled to say, I wasn't asking you about your communion with Dorothy. I was asking you about your relationship with Dorothy, to which the answer is, she is my wife. That is a fact. It's a permanent fact. It's an unchanging fact. It's the undergirding fact that gives stability to the ups and downs and sideways of married life. It's the determining factor of how I live my life. What's my relationship? It's a fact. She is my wife. And it's this kind of thinking that we need to have introduced into 
the whole way in which we think about what it means to be a Christian, because in our very subjectively oriented or orientated, for those of us who are British, environment as evangelical Christians, we're always thinking about what happens in here. And we never get clear and straight and progress in what happens in here unless we understand what the nature of the relationship actually is. And Paul is telling us the nature of the relationship is we are people who have been crucified with Christ. It is out of that that we need to view everything. That's who I am now as a Christian. That's the nature of the relationship. It's not a matter of how I feel about it. It's not a matter of what I'm doing with it. It is a matter of the absolute foundational nature of my relationship to Jesus Christ. But I've been crucified with him. And when I hold on to that by faith, it begins to transform my life. And there's another dimension to this. If I'm a Christian, then Christ himself, in the power of his Holy Spirit, has come to dwell in me. Now, you might say, I don't feel that he's dwelling in me. Well, let me ask you a question. How would you feel if he were dwelling in you? And you see, so long as we, as long as we come to texts like this and say, well, I don't feel that, so I can ignore it, it's almost as though we turn the Christian life into a two-dimensional reality instead of, if I can use the term here, the four-dimensional reality it really is. So let's try and think about these two things this evening. Dimension number one, the Christian is someone who by definition has been crucified with Christ. Now, with the apologies to any of you who hated grammar lessons at school, uh, we, need to, we need to have a little grammar lesson here to clear out the way in which I think people often misunderstand what Paul is saying here. And, and I apologize to those of you who hated being asked at school, will you parse this verb, crucified with? Actually, it's interesting. Our English words, I have been crucified with, are one word in the Greek text, one verb in the Greek text. Now, just follow it through with me as I parse for you that verb. First of all, verbs have tenses, past, present, future. What is the tense of this verb? Is it future? I will be crucified with Christ. Is it present? I am being crucified with Christ. No, it's past. I have been crucified with Christ. So it's in the past tense. Now, then our grammar gets a little tricky. Verbs not only have tenses, they have voices, don't they? What's the voice of this verb? Is this active or is this passive? Is this, for example, something I have to do? Well, no, it's, uh, it's passive, isn't it? I have been crucified with Christ. And then, as you know, verbs also have moods. Indicative, do it. Or imp indicative, it's been done. Imperative, do it. So, is my response to this text, I must crucify myself with Christ? No, this is not an imperative mood. This is an indicative mood. This is telling me something that has already been done, that is already true, that is a reality in my Christian life. It's not something for me to do. It's not something for me to obey. It's not something to which I contribute in any way. It's a simple reality describing the life of the person who has come to believe in Jesus Christ. 
Let me try this another way. You meet Paul a year before the Damascus Road, and you say to him, are you a Jew? It's obvious he's a Jew. But you say, are you a Jew? He says, what does he say? Yes, he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. You meet him two years afterwards, and you say, are you a Christian? He says, yes, I was crucified with Christ. It's as much a reality in his life as the circumcision he experienced but could not remember on the eighth day of his own life. It is a new permanent status that he has. And this is such an important thing for Paul that he expounds it at enormous length in various parts of the New Testament. For example, if you, if you look at Romans 5, 12 through, actually through the end of Romans 8, 39, and ask yourself, what is it that Paul is saying here? He is expounding this statement. Something happened to me when I become a Christian. I trust in Jesus Christ, and I am so united to Jesus Christ that not only has Christ done something for me on the cross, but when I came to faith in Jesus Christ, I was united to all that he is and all that he has done for me, so much so that that has dramatically, radically and finally transformed who I am and therefore transforms or begins to transform how I think about myself. Or let me, let me put it with just a little pressure and, and uh, deliberately provocatively. If you don't think of yourself if you're a Christian, if you don't think of yourself as someone who has been crucified with Christ, you're not thinking of yourself as a Christian the way the New Testament teaches you to think about yourself. And you know, if that's true, then it's a real indication to us, isn't it, of how far we may have drifted in the 21st century from thinking about the gospel and about the Christian life in really biblical terms. Let me try it another way, if I may, and then I'll stop trying it. I lived in the United States about half my life, and I never became an American citizen. That's another story. But I never became an American citizen. But what would have happened to me if I'd, I'd gone along and taken the little test? I think if you get 65%, you're in, and the questions are fairly simple. Uh, and lifted my hand and, and said the requisite oath. What would have happened to me? What would have happened to me would be this. I would have been immediately and radically taken out of my British citizenship and become an American citizen. Immediately that was true, the founding fathers of the nation would be the founding fathers of my nation. Immediately that was true, I would no longer be living under the British Constitution, but under the American Constitution. The moment that was true, Her Majesty could send a thousand troops to my door and say, Sinclair Ferguson, we need you in the military, and I could wave from the window and say, bye-bye. You no longer reign over me. But if Mr. Obama came to the door and said, Ferguson, you're being conscripted, this new identity that I'd been given would determine everything about my life. But in the first days, you know, I might go away from the little office in Charlotte. Is there one in Charlotte, Will, or Washington, or somewhere, and might walk out the door and say, I don't actually feel any different from when I went in. I don't feel particularly American. My accent's still the same. I still like haggis. 
but I would, I would have a completely different identity. And that would impact, that would go on to impact absolutely everything I did until slowly I would begin to think about myself as someone who was no longer a Scotsman, but somebody who was an American. Now, it it might take me years before I actually began to think, gosh, I'm responding like an American. I'm thinking like an American. I feel like an American. Just as for all of us, it takes the whole of the Christian life for for it to dawn on us. What does it mean that I have been crucified with Christ? But you see, right from the very moment that we become Christians, that's something that's true of us. And one of the things it means and meant for Paul is that all the old powers that held sway over us and still in their sinister way seek to entangle us, they no longer have any authority, no more any dominion, no more a right to reign over our lives, whether it be Satan or sin or the law of Moses or death. And so you see this transforms our perspective on everything. I said I'll give up, but I'm going to try one more time. Uh, the president of the seminary where I taught uh, many years ago, I bumped into him walking across campus and I'd been teaching there a number of years. He said, have you become an American citizen yet? No, he didn't say yet. He just said, have you become an American citizen? I said, pardon me? He said, have you become an American citizen yet? I said, an American citizen? He said, yes, an American citizen. I said, me, an American citizen? He said, yes, you're beginning to understand my question. Have you become an American citizen yet? What was my response to him? Well, how could I? What do you mean, how could you? What's the answer? Because I'm a Scotsman. You see? And uh, for our American friends, it's the same, isn't it? Um... You know, uh, friends who are Republicans in the United States in the last eight years in in congregations, I, I think I could easily have whipped up the emotion and said, there are buses waiting and we're going to drive up to Washington and we're going to the White House and we're going to take over and we're going to remove the president. Because of the way they voted, they would have been happy to remove the president. So why wouldn't they get into the bus? Because they're Americans, that's why. And it drives everything about them. And this is this massive concept that Paul is dealing with here. He's saying, look, if you've become a Christian, it isn't just that you have put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is that through that faith in Jesus Christ, you have been drawn into his history And your history, Adam's history, your personal history is no longer the dominant influence in your life. And so when you're struggling against sin, you're you're no longer struggling from the point of view, is this bigger than me, taller than me, stronger than me? You're struggling against sin and the knowledge that sin no longer reigns over you because you've been crucified with Christ. And as Paul says in Romans 6, he died to sin, has been raised into newness of life. And therefore he says, sin will no longer have dominion over you. So what he's saying to these Christians in Galatia, what he had said to Peter, what he had, he had reasoned with his fellow Christians at Antioch was this, you need to capture the the sheer magnitude of the dimension of what it means to become a Christian. It means that you've been crucified with Christ, that you're no longer the person you once were, that you've been brought into a new nation, that you're under a new king, that you live in a new world. What he says in 2 Corinthians 5, isn't it? If anyone is in Christ, Now, what he says literally is this, if any in Christ, new creation. 
He doesn't say, actually, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creature. That's true enough. What he says is, don't you realize that when you're in Christ, you've you've been brought into a new order of reality altogether? And with Christ, you have been crucified to the old. And with Christ, you've been raised into the new. And you are actually no longer the person you once were. And so you've come to share. And you need to learn to think about it this way. Just like, you know, um, uh, some of you girls will, where are you? Some of you girls maybe get married in a few years' time. What's the first thing you'll struggle with? Writing the new name. And then responding when you hear that you're Mrs. McGonagall. (laughs) That's not a prophecy, incidentally. We're not into that kind of thing. You see? But then you you say to yourself, "I'm I'm a married woman, and because that's true, I I grow into this new identity that I've been given where I can't actually think about myself without thinking about myself as being part and parcel of this other person. And this is the marvel of being a Christian, that everything that Christ has done for me actually becomes mine through this faith union I enjoy with him. And so, as I begin to understand this new identity I've been given, inevitably, it it transforms my life. You see, we live in a world where the big thing is, what do I need to do to be a Christian? Whereas, for Paul, the first thing is, this is what you need to know if you're going to do anything to be a Christian, you need to know what it actually means to be a Christian. You, you need your identity to be a reality to you. And I think the sad truth is, and perhaps many of us would confess it, that uh, the devil is into identity theft in our lives long before the expression identity theft had ever been invented. So I I ask again, because this is a, a real challenge to us, do you think about yourself day and daily as somebody who has been crucified with Christ? If somebody says, what's your relationship to Jesus Christ? Do you tend to think about, well, how am I doing today? Or is your first response to say, my relationship is this, with Christ, I have been crucified. With Christ, I have been crucified. Don't you see that that's a different way of thinking about yourself? And then he adds this next dimension, and we can deal with this, I think, more briefly. This dimension is is as staggering. I have been crucified with Christ, and yet I live. You know, here I am. You know, I'm I'm not a body in a casket or in a tomb. Here I am. I've been crucified with Christ, and yet I'm still alive. Ah, but something has been radically transformed. The life that I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And I live in the knowledge that he has come to live in me. And this is what he's saying, isn't it? It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Or if I can paraphrase that, it is no longer, it is no longer I in all my self-centeredness that drives the ambitions and actions of my life. And in a sense, it's not even just the fact that I have faith that drives the actions of my life. It is nothing less than this, that through 
the gift of the Holy Spirit, the Lord Jesus himself, by his Spirit, has come to indwell my life. Actually, this is one of the things that Jesus was pressing on the apostles in the, in the upper room, wasn't it? Um, you know, there they were. They, they needed something big to get them through the next weeks. What was the big thing? It was this, when the Holy Spirit comes, it will be like myself coming to make my home in your life. Remember how Paul puts it in Romans 8, 8 and 9? He says, you know, if, if, uh, if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, then you, you don't belong to Christ. Because anyone who belongs to Christ is someone in whom Jesus Christ dwells in the power of the Holy Spirit. Or what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, magnificently, in verse 27, where he says, here is the hope of glory. Here is Here's the reality that gives you the assurance that the glory you haven't yet experienced, you will experience. Now, what's the assurance? Christ in you. Or as he prays in Ephesians chapter 3 in that magnificent prayer that that you'll understand the height and the breadth and the length and the depth of the love of Jesus Christ for you and that he will dwell in your hearts through faith. Just in parenthesis, you know, when you begin to think this way, the the church is transformed, isn't it? You know, we're all different. Some of us get on with others better than with some others. You know, we, we have our natural preferences, and then in most churches, there are people you think, I don't think I'll ever be able to get on with her. What do you think? If she's Christ's, Christ dwells in her by the Holy Spirit. Isn't it a C.S. Lewis? You know, Lewis is like Luther and Spurgeon. You say absolutely anything, but nobody's read everything, and so you can get away with it. But if C.S. Lewis didn't say this, he should have said this. He says, you know, if we really grasped the glory of the gospel, we would be restraining ourselves from bowing down before the humblest Christian believer and treating them like princes and princesses because the Lord of glory is not ashamed to come and dwell in their hearts. Now, that's that's absolutely mind-bending. But it's also life transforming. On the one hand, I've been crucified with Christ and after the old has gone. The powers that held me in their grip have, that grip has been broken. Yes, I struggle with sin because although sin's reign over me has been broken, its presence in me hasn't finally been abandoned or abolished. And I'm not left to my own resources. Because Christ dwells in me. You see how different this is from the notion, well, now that you've been justified, you need to do better. Now that you've been justified, your task is to find out how you can live the Christian life to the best of your ability. No, the gospel doesn't bring us into the kingdom and then leave us to our own resources. The gospel says, take a look back and see what happened to you. That the old is gone and the new has come. And you're living out the new, yes, in the same old body and the same old world and the same temptations around you and the same miserable people that you've got to deal with day by day. But you've been changed. And not only so, but as you live your life in this world, the Lord of glory who was incarnate in the womb of the Virgin Mary, sustained by the Spirit throughout the whole course of his life, crucified, dead, buried, ascended and reigning, has said to his Father, Father, the Holy Spirit was with me from the womb to the tomb to the throne. He's for all practical purposes, if, 
if we send the Holy Spirit into their hearts, it will be like sending me down from heaven into their hearts. And uh, if one can be a little trivial, it's as though the Father said, let's do it. And let's see what happens when it dawns on them that this is what it really means for them to be a Christian. And as I say, one of the things with which we struggle is that these are two elements of the Christian life in which there has been, I think, very severe identity theft in the lives of many Christians. A couple of Sundays ago, just at this time, I had come off a a very intense period. I think I'd given 25 lectures. I had delivered about 16 messages. I had done four radio programs and a couple of question and answer sessions. And I was preaching at night, and I lay down in, on the bed and thought, I, I, just need, I just need to have a little nap. And for only the second time in my life, I woke up, and I couldn't remember who I was or where I was. It'll happen to you one day. <laughs> Don't mock the afflicted. It'll happen to you one day. And all I had was this kind of sense I've had once before in my life. I don't know who I am. I don't know where I am. I don't know what I do. I just know there's something important I'm supposed to be doing soon. And so I better find out who I am. But you know, isn't it true of us as Christians that actually many of us live like in that in-between area where we've come to the Lord Jesus, but we still don't really know who we are in Christ. And here are, here are two pieces, essential pieces to that identity. You're somebody who has been crucified with Christ. And so all the powers that reigned over you, they still have the same power, but they no longer reign. And you're free to live for the Lord and free to fight against those powers in this assurance that none other than the Lord of glory has come to dwell in you so that you can live out of of your resources. Many years ago, I think 47, I was sent by InterVarsity, as it was in those days, I think it was 19 or 20, to a conference in the Netherlands. I was collected at the airport by an absolutely delightful Christian, a medical student. His name was Ari von Neu Amarongen. And all his friends called him Appy Ari. And I was to speak at some point in this conference to the, to the students. This is another story. Not for tonight. And uh, he, he said to me, Appy Ari said to me, I think he's a very distinguished cardiologist now. He said to me, are you going to speak to us about the life out of Jesus Christ? And I said, no, Ari, I am going to speak to you about the life in Jesus Christ. Do you know what he said? Ah, he said, this is what I mean. I've never forgotten it. And I kind of thought, you're exactly right. The life that we live in Jesus Christ is actually the life that we live out of the resources of Jesus Christ. So in his slightly unusual use of prepositions as it happens. It was like a light going on. Ah, this is what it means to be a Christian. Maybe this is why Ari is so happy that he knows that he's living in this battle out of the resources that are his in Jesus Christ, his Lord. So the Son of God loved me, gave himself for me. I live by faith in him. And so I've been crucified with Christ. And yet, though crucified, I live. And yet, no longer I, no longer out of the I that uh, reigned and ruled, but out of the resources of the Son of God who has come to, to live in me. It, 
That's the way we need to learn that's who we are. You know, it's great to be in a congregation where there are younger people, and you get to an age where everybody's a younger person, but it's also great to be in a congregation where there are older people who actually get your illustrations. (laughs) And the way I love to illustrate this is to go back to, I don't know, seven or eight years old, who's my age in the congregation, Saturday mornings on the radio, Radio Scotland between nine and ten, what was the program you listened to? It was Derek McCulloch's children's favorites, Uncle Mac. Do you remember? Listen to this. There are people in this church who understand what I'm talking about here, so (laughs) you students listen to this. At the end of every program, it was a request program, at the end of every single program, as I remember, Uncle Mac always played one of two songs. Don't know why. Maybe they were the big requests. They were both sung by Danny Kaye, and I think they were from a movie about Hans Christian Andersen and all these fairy stories. And one of them was, of course, The King's New Clothes. You know, the king is in the altogether. You know that? King's New Clothes. The other one was this, The Ugly Duckling. Remember The Ugly Duckling? Feathers all stubby and brown and all kind of interned and and, uh, depressed. And uh, then one day he sees his reflection. I think it was a he. Sees his reflection in the river and is just stunned by the fact that he's got these great white feathers. And he, he goes into a kind of ecstasy of identity discovery. He's no longer an ugly duckling, as he thought himself to be. And he swans off, (laughs) shouting to himself, I'm a swan, I'm a swan, I'm a swan. And too many of us are afflicted, not least by Satan, with the thought, what an ugly duckling I am even although I'm a Christian. And uh, we need to look into the, the river of Scripture and the mirror of the Word because when we, when we read here, no, no. Your identity is that the Son of God loved you and gave himself for you. And he's brought you to trust him. And the truth about you is this, that you have been crucified with Christ and yet you live. But you no longer live out of those old resources, but out of the resources of the Son of God who has come by his Holy Spirit to dwell in you. And you know when that dawns on you, you can say exactly the same words you used before when somebody says, who are you? And you say, I'm a Christian. But those words have a dramatically and gloriously different meaning. I'm not an ugly duckling. I'm a swan in an ugly world. And I'm going to swim against the tide of the river to the glory of the one who has come in this way to indwell me. Isn't that something? Don't, don't you think that would, that would transform? I don't just mean the, you know, the big things we do, but the whole poise of our Christian lives, the, the sense of dignity that we would have in the face of the demeaning of the Christian gospel because we would be the one group of people in the world who really know the answer to the question, who are you? really. And I don't know whether it's still true or not, but it certainly was true a few years ago that the most frequently used title of poetry written by teenagers in high school was, Who Am I? And one of the great things if you're in high school is to think in the middle of it, golly, I'm in Christ. He's in me. And unlike my friends to whom I want to witness, 
I actually know who I really am. Well, do you know who you really are? (laughs) Wake you up in the middle of the night and say, who are you? I've been crucified with Christ and he's come to live in me. Heavenly Father, thank you for the riches of the grace of Jesus Christ. We we turn even to small sections of your word like this and we realize that there, there is a place here for the lambs to bathe in. And as the early fathers used to say, even for the element, the elephants to be able to swim. And we pray that at whatever level we grasp the reality of this apostolic teaching, that you will teach us more and more what it means that we are Christ's and that Christ is ours. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.